PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites. Archive, distribute, and display your photos in a flash-free, responsive website. Try one for free for 14 days at PhotoShelter.com. Get our latest educational guides for free. PhotoShelter.com slash resources. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Alan Murabayashi broadcasting live from PhotoShelter World Headquarters here in New York City. You're listening to another episode of I Love Photography, episode 49. You might be watching us on YouTube.com slash PhotoShelter, or you might have downloaded the podcast by going to iTunes and searching for I Love Photography. Whatever the case may be, we're happy to have you here. I was going through my Facebook feed, as I always do almost daily, and I started seeing a number of people commenting on a post that was popping up on Medium.com. And it was written by a photographer and filmmaker named Tim Matsui out in Seattle. Turns out he's also a photo shelter uh, customer, um, but that's sort of irrelevant to the, the point of his story. The, the, the piece talks about how he had just won uh, a set of awards, and how it really didn't matter. And we've been talking so much about photo contests recently with all of the World Press Photo uh, hubbub that I thought it was, number one, kind of a refreshing take, and number two, kind of a sobering take on the reality of investing your life into a documentary project, winning a couple of awards, and then sort of wondering whether it's going to make a difference or not. So with that, let me introduce Tim Matsui. Hey, Tim, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So tell us first about the awards and why you entered them into the uh, entered the project into the con into the contests. Um, yeah, well, first off, I mean, I, I am incredibly honored to have won uh, both of these first place prizes from Pictures of the Year and World Press. I mean, they, you know, as an industry standard, I think um, yeah, I, I value that. Uh, but I personally didn't enter the project. It was Brian Storm of Media Storm who entered uh, the, the stuff. So it was a surprise to me that that had happened. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> there they went. <laughs> I lost my train of thought already. So the, the, the point you were kind of making in the article is that you're really looking for social change, and we should describe what the project is. The project okay. is called The, the Long Night. Um, the film is called The Long Night, but the overall project is Leaving the Life. That was the original name for it, and it was, um, you know, continues to be the name for the all-encompassing engagement uh, driven by uh, documentary narrative. Um, and it's, uh, it's about grassroots efforts to address domestic minor sex trafficking. And for those who don't know what DMST is, it is the... Uh, sexual exploitation for money of, you know, kids on your street, basically. I like to say it's like little Janie down the street, not some foreign national that's being brought in. Though that is a, a relevant and, and common form of trafficking here in the United States as well. And, and that was a bit of a surprise to you, the revelation that it wasn't foreigners that were being trafficked over long distances. It was literally American citizens, in a lot of cases, uh, minor teens. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean... It really requires a mental shift when you think about homeless youth on the street. Um, you know, that's that's a vulnerability creating situation. Um, and I don't know if you got if you remember that River Phoenix film. Um, I already forgot the name of it. Anyway, You're dating yourself by bringing up River Phoenix. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever. I'm old. Uh, <laughs> uh, so. 
Anyhow, I, I had come back from Southeast Asia working in Cambodia looking at trafficking for labor and for sex and really understanding what some of the root causes are for that as well as some of the, uh, the things that are necessary to help survivors recover and become part of uh, you know, society again. And when I came back to Seattle and saw that the city was starting to approach this issue from this perspective that I had seen overseas, I thought, oh, well, maybe I can do this work here. And that was in 2009. And they were looking at um, the report specifically had 238 names of individuals who are minors who are participating in commercial sex. And they estimated anywhere from three to 500 at any one time in King County were involved in commercial sex. And most of that was um, you know, being run by, by pimps. Uh, and so with that, I began the project you know, in terms of writing grants and researching and reconnecting with the uh, sexual violence folks that I had worked with in the previous decade. Um, and finally, in 2012, I wrote a successful grant that the Alexia Foundation honored with their women's initiative. So that was the seed capital to start this project. It, it, it's a project that you've been working on for a very, very long time. Mm. Other than the Alexia money, what what have been the ways that you've explored funding it, or has it largely been a labor of love? Uh, it's been both. Um, so, I mean, it really started in around 2000 when I started doing the um, sexual violence stuff, uh, and it turned into a nonprofit. Um, that really taught me a lot about trauma and victimization, and also about the nonprofit aspect taught me a lot about engaging communities. And the grants that I won for that work um, was, the, the biggest one was an Open Society Foundation's documentary distribution grant, which allowed us to take our dozen or so classroom talks a year to 65 within one year. And had we had continuing funding, I think it would have been a very successful program. Um, other grants were from King County for Culture, which is an arts uh, granting organization here in the Seattle area, and the Fund for Investigative Journalism. And those two grants helped me with my work in Southeast Asia, but, and I'm going to date myself again, um, before social media was really super prominent, um, you know, Facebook was still kind of coming out in 07, 08, I think, Instagram didn't exist. Um, I did a couple of fundraisers here with my community in the Seattle area, um, literally going down the street and asking the neighborhood pub, hey, could we do an event there? Um, and they were like, yeah, and by the way, you could do a burger beer deal for like 25 bucks. Our cost is 11. You get to keep the rest. And so people knew that when they were buying that burger and beer, that they were supporting my work in Southeast Asia. So that was another way of funding it. Um, and then for the specific stuff with the domestic minor sex trafficking, um, I promised myself I wouldn't start until I had some funding. And so the 25,000 from the Alexia Foundation. Again, that's seed capital, and that's maybe six months worth of living expenses. Um, Seattle's a lot cheaper than New York. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I kept on going, though, because the relationships deepened and the access uh, was there. And basically, I mean, at this point, I've, I've spent my savings and thrown every commercial and editorial job into supporting this work um, and yeah, I've driven myself into, you know, a, a less flush situation, I guess. Um, but as part of that, I developed an engagement program with uh, a fourth act, which is Andrew Devagal and Laura Loforti. And you can see their work at a fourthact.com. 
But what that allows us to do is to take this uh, media and pair it with an application that allows us to capture the audience's emotional reaction. And then we can feed it back to them immediately afterwards and use that as a starting point for facilitated discussion in which we co-design solutions so that audience has ownership. And it's really targeted at policymakers and first responders. Um, and so we applied for a grant from the Fledgling Fund uh, which has supported a number of amazing film projects, and uh, with them, they're you know we're we're developing the the model which will take you know this movie and turn it into a movement. So that's that's more or less where I'm at right now. The typical and, approach to oh sorry go ahead yeah it's oh, no I'm looking for continuing funding so okay yeah. of course yeah. the the typical approach to uh, documentary projects if I can sort of stereotype the photojournalist or the, the documentary filmmaker uh, is to take a bunch of photos, do an edit, maybe come up with a gallery show, and maybe produce a book. I, I think that was probably, even as, as um, recent as maybe five years ago, that was kind of the approach. And maybe even as recent as this year is how a lot of documentary uh, photographers approach it. It doesn't mean that they're not invested in the subject, but that seems to be kind of the the traditional path of what you do with the documentary story. In your view, what is the new way to go about attacking a documentary story, particularly when you want to affect change? You need partners who are actually working in the communities that, that you know, are looking for that change or need that change. Um, because of the work that I did with the sexual violence stuff last decade, uh, I, I you know, had this community here in the Seattle area that was invested in this trauma and victimization stuff and, and had people who would vouch for me. Um, additionally, there have been organizations that have developed here uh, specific to domestic minor sex trafficking uh, that have brought on board law enforcement and prosecution and you know, seeing that they have a need and they, they want to connect emotionally um, and that's what these stories have in them, they can leverage these stories to um, you know, broaden the engagement in, in their community. So I think that you know, you, the book is nice, but it's really expensive. It doesn't make a lot. It actually probably won't make you money. It'll cost you money. Uh, publishers want you to pay for the printing now. And you know you have a ten thousand or twenty five thousand print run. That's that's all you can reach, um, and you know, maybe a few extra beyond that. But if you can leverage the existing tools uh, today, I mean Instagram. If you look at Everyday Everywhere, or you know which started from Everyday Africa. You know, Peter DeCampo lives here in Seattle, and uh, he inspired me to incorporate that model into Leaving the Life, which uh, we now have an Instagram handle at Leaving the Life, and. I'm trying to engage communities through that to, um, you know, post a hashtag leaving the life and put an image up that is about their story, about hope and overcoming and something that's positive and, you know, doesn't have to be literal or journalistic, um, but, you know, they have a story that goes with it. And in that way, we're building community virtually. I mean, it's, it's you know, in the very, very, very beginning stages of it, but that's just another way which people can engage. So. Um, really, I look at it as I've told these stories, but I need to get these stories to the audiences where they're at. And however I can deliver that, I mean, if it does mean a coffee table book, great. But I think that the web offers us a lot more. And then also, what surprised me a lot is people really want to have screenings of the film. And that's helping me to engage um, 
cities. I mean, literally. Like, I had the city of Tacoma a month ago called me up and said, we're starting a task force down here to address this issue. We would like to screen the film. How do we do that? And so I was able to say, well, that's wonderful. I'm working with a partner here in Seattle that is, you know, coordinating all the regional task forces. Um, and we can bring together you know, an amazing panel to help you, uh, but we want your local experts too, because when we leave that area, the locals need to be invested in it. They have to have ownership of it. So I think, again, it's really about partnership and relationship. If you want this story to, to really have lasting impact, um, the communities that you're working with have to own it. You're looking to raise, uh, I think you said about $200,000 for all the post-production uh, mm. Related to the film, no, <laughs> I need I need about 20k for post production on the film. Um, mm -hmm. it, it looks great on the web, but it doesn't sound or look as great in the theater, and so it needs to go to a professional post production house to get finished, and um, that will allow me to put this into any commercial theater around the country. Um, you know, basically again taking it to where the audience is, but. Also, to develop the Leaving the Life program, which is taking that movie and turning it into a movement, I guess, a movement in a box, if you will. Um, yeah, I'm looking, I, I, need, I need to be able to pay people to work on this. Um, you know, when the World Press announcement came out and I, I uh, published that piece to Medium that you saw, um, that was, what, Tuesday night or Wednesday morning or something like that? Um, I haven't been able to finish the grant proposal or the uh, you know story proposal that I was going to work on this week because I spent a day and a half literally just tending to the social media, which mm -hmm. is important to any campaign. Um, and so that's why I invest time into it. But it would be great if I had you know a part-time social media manager or something. Yeah. <laughs> so is yeah, there, I mean, uh, I uh, did you did you explore or consider using crowdfunding uh, for components of this project? We're talking about that actually. We're we're looking at possibly doing a Kickstarter to raise the the money for the post production. Um, and actually, just met with a, a guy yesterday um, who's who's been doing that. He actually represents French artists here in the U.S. Uh, but you know, we were talking about sending out rewards and and what that looks like, and you know. You got to ask for a lot of money to cover this stuff. It's labor intensive to do a Kickstarter and to send out the rewards and to really, I mean, again, it's about building community or in the case of Kickstarter, monetizing your community. And you need to give to that audience um, because they want to be part of it. So, you know, me, I, I don't have that capacity. I'm, you know, I don't, I don't sleep a lot. Um, so, uh, again, that's that's where I would need to bring in staff. Or, you know, I, have a, I have a handful of volunteers um, and they're amazing and wonderful but you know, they've got full-time jobs and they're doing this you know, because they're, you know, they, they care about it but um, you know, if I could pay some of these people, like some of the freelancers that I'm working with, if I could just pay them up front and say, hey great, I, I, you know, I get 20 hours of your time this month um, and I can just hand you these projects. It would be amazing to be able to free myself up to do more of this strategic partnership stuff. Um, so, you know, a crowdfunding campaign is great, but honestly, I look at them as more marketing with a little bit of money and a lot of work. Um, you know, unless you're that, what, you know, what is that exploding cats thing or something like that? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, 
I, and I, I'm open to ideas. You know, it's all part of leveraging the tools that we have today on the interwebs to build community and, and get story out there and, and make change. When you talk about making change and affecting change in the community and having the project do something positive for society and your local community, have you really thought about what metric you're looking at? Is it taking 10 kids off the street, 100 kids off the street, eradicating the problem altogether? How, how would you actually define success in, the, in this project? Well, I never really was good at numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get my geology degree. It was a minor because I had a problem with the calculus class. Um, but uh, fortunately, I had that backup, that well-qualified one, journalism, right? Uh, so, no, um, measuring it, I don't know. I, I, I hesitate to, to give any concrete statement on that because I really don't understand what is good data, and I would rather leave that to the data people. What I do know is that um, the first screening that I did here in Seattle was to exclusively law enforcement and prosecution. And we had over 80 people from around the region, uh, you know, Homeland Security, FBI, Seattle police, Renton police, um, you know, police chiefs, couple of mayors, prosecutors, Department of Corrections, victim advocates. They all came and they watched this film, uh, courtesy of the city of Renton. And afterwards, the school resource officers stood up and were like, we need to get this into schools as far down as middle school. And then I had sergeants come over and say, I need my captain to see this so that we can get more support for this issue. And I had, an, I, I don't remember how many people at this point have said, this needs to get into the uh, training academy for all law enforcement here in Washington. So, so that to me says when it's coming from people, you know, the law enforcement who are dealing with this on, on a regular basis, and they say the message in this film about police becoming victim-centric that needs to be communicated throughout law enforcement in the region. Um, that, to me, says that there is change that can be measured. Uh, and if it's coming from the people who are doing this uh, every day, then that, I mean, that's, that's an endorsement that, that I, I have to respect. So, Tim, congratulations on the awards. Congratulations on a fantastic project. Thanks for writing that piece on, on Medium and continued success. Uh, we're going we're gonna to try to let people know about the project as well. So uh, Thank thanks you. for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's Tim Matsui from uh, Washington. We'll say bye to him now, and uh, we'll keep going with the show. Everything we're talking about today is going to be on the blog, as usual, at blog.photoshelter.com. So we hope that you uh, check that out, and you can find the links uh, on Tim's project, which is on medium.com and, and some other links that he mentioned as well. Uh, you know, he won a couple uh, prizes, including one from World Press Photo. World Press Photo continues to be in the news for not always the greatest reasons, but check this out. The British Journal of Photography, the venerable uh, publication, BJP, is announcing that Giovanni Troilo, the photographer whose award was taken away, has been approached by several organizations to have an exhibit of his work, the work that was eliminated, proving that there's no such thing as bad news. Now, I don't have a problem with him getting the ex uh, exhibitions at all, I, and, and, and the work is quite nice. Uh, I think the only question that people had was really the veracity of the captions, um, and uh, 
the way that WorldPress went about investigating the claims. So uh, I guess there's a silver lining there for Giovanni. Um, he still doesn't quite understand where all of the hubbub comes from. Uh, and as we've said before on the show and in some op-ed pieces I've written on the blog at blog.photoshelter.com, I'm not pointing the finger at him. To me, it just continues to show the large divide between people's understanding of what is ethical and what is not. And that's why these organizations, photo contests, trade organizations, et cetera, really need to address this on an ongoing basis because I think it's actually a fluid situation. What was ethical to might not be ethical now and, and vice versa. So we have to keep looking at that situation. In news that uh, you probably aren't surprised to hear, our good friend John Harrington has been writing about Getty's downward spiral because they have a huge uh, loan that's due soon. And he's been writing over at uh, Photo Business News and Forum, uh, a news site about the photo industry that he's been maintaining for years and years and years and years. And over uh, on February 26th, he had a piece called Getty Images Downward Spiral Approaches Judgment Day. And today we find out that the co-founder and CEO of Getty Images is stepping down. He'll be uh, becoming chairman, well-deserved. He's been there for 20 years. And the next Getty Images CEO will probably be an external hire. This, no doubt, is in part pressured by the P&E firm that uh, bought Getty Images a few years ago. So changes, if you're not happy with the way that Getty's doing uh, business, you might be cheering. To me, it's uh, instability in the industry. Um, and it's really showing kind of the changing uh, world of stock. And the changing world of stock is never in the favor of the photographer, in part because of the ubiquity of digital cameras and digital images. It's just hard to make a living like you could in the 80s and 90s shooting stock photography. So best wishes to Jonathan Klein on his move to the chairman, and we hope that Getty Images survives to see another day. We had a fantastic webinar yesterday with Justin and Mary Morantz. If you've been to WPPI in Las Vegas before, the largest uh, wedding and portrait photography uh, conference before, then you probably know that name, Justin and Mary. Justin and Mary shared a whole bunch of information about, about developing your worth. They're just super, super great people. That webinar was co-sponsored by Tamron, and Tamron gave away this awesome lens to one of the attendees. It's their 24-70 f2.8 DIVC USD lens. 24-70 to me is the perfect focal length. It just gets the job done. 2.8, super bright lens. Thank you, Tamron, for doing that. The, the entire uh, recording of that webinar will be available on the blog at blog.photoshelter.com, as will all these links that we're talking about today. We've been talking about a lot of news, kind of depressing subjects. Here's something that should inspire you a little bit. Martin Scheller, one of my favorite portrait photographers, over on Feature Shoot, they did a nice uh, interview with him. They did an interview with him for an hour, and they condensed the best parts down to about six minutes. Uh, so our friend Allison Zavos over there at Feature Shoot put this together, and some really, really great advice um, and some interesting 
things that he revealed. Like I would just assume if Martin Scheller says, I'm going to take your photo and you're the subject, you'll just do whatever he says. But in fact, he says that a lot of publicists for these movie stars uh, will turn down requests. And so a lot of his job is just kind of talking to the subject and making them feel comfortable. Interesting. He pounded the pavement really hard to get his uh, name out there. He had one great photo. I think it was of Vanessa Redgrave that became kind of his signature calling card. And his advice to young uh, photographers is find three to four photographers whose work you really, really like and assist for them for two to three years and really learn how they make it work as a photographer and as a business person. It's a fantastic six-minute video. Check it out at Feature Shoot. Instagram has been around for a really, really long time. It's hard to believe that the New York Times just joined Instagram this week. What? And look, already 27 posts and already 27,000 followers. That's the power of the brand, people. Um, they're showcasing images from various stories. Um, that aren't necessarily making it into print or on the website. Uh, so some really, really interesting photos coming up. Uh, a lot of stuff out of China. There's uh, uh, beginnings on the fringe of Beijing is the article that I saw, and I'm seeing a lot of photos from that. Um, so glad to see that the New York Times is on Instagram. They did point out that T Magazine and some other properties, the fashion uh, section had been on Instagram already and they've been very active in social media as you probably know but hard to believe that they just joined Instagram as the New York Times proper this week over in Texas a uh, representative Jason Vialba a Republican from Dallas is introducing a bill to restrict the rights of citizens to videotape police within 25 feet of the police. Uh, and as you can imagine, it is creating qu quite an uproar uh, amongst photographers and citizens um, who feel that that right to photograph uh, or videotape uh, police is a check and balance uh, against police corruption. He says that he got a lot of uh, questions uh, or inquiries and, uh, from police, and that's why he introduced the bill Man, I hope this doesn't pass. This is uh, this is kind of crazy. It's going to have a, a bit of a chilling effect. Um, you know, when police need to rope off an area, they just rope off an area. Uh, why create another law to uh, make the 25 feet rule there? Who knows? On the time light box, they're talking about a photographer named Nicholas Williams. Nicholas attached a camera to his face. Now, I know what you're thinking, because this is what I thought. I thought, just GoPro on a strap, put it on his face, walk down the street, Times Square, take some photos. What's the big deal? And then I realized that it was actually a homemade film camera triggered by his jaw. <laughs> so take a look at this photo here. That's him with this contraption taped to his face. Um, and there's twine. Uh, I guess in New York, nobody would really say anything. Uh, it doesn't really look like a camera. And there's so many weird people walking around Times Square that you probably wouldn't notice. Um, and the photos, well, here's some of the photos. 
the first photo that I uh, that we just saw wasn't that great, but this photo is kind of interesting. I can it's hard to even describe. So you probably want to go to Time uh, Lightbox and check it out. But it almost looks like an astronaut in an oversized helmet. There's kind of a, a neat quality to it. I'm not sure that this uh, this head camera is ever going to make it to Kickstarter. It's not the kind of thing that I think will have a large audience. Um, but interesting nonetheless. And the guy is a uh, multimedia artist, so I think it's in keeping with uh, the artistic and creative side of his uh, brain. He's going to take it to other cities. Who knows? Maybe we'll see a, a refinement of the process and a refinement of the design. The camera company Rico has worked to return over 90,000 photos to victims of the 2011 tsunami in Japan. This is a piece over on Petapixel that Michael Zhang wrote. Super, super interesting. They found, uh, as you know, a ton of waterlogged and damaged prints. Um, they cataloged all of these. They took them to a warehouse. They have a massive uh, labor force there of people who are cleaning these images soaking them in various solutions, hanging them up, recataloging them, scanning them, and then returning them to the areas where they were found. 90,000 photos. We've seen this before. Operation Photo Rescue here in the United States, who has gone to various hurricane areas and done the same. Uh, photos are everything for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, when you have a print and that's the last reminder of what has been uh, has a lot of emotional impact for you so kind of like losing stuff when your hard drive crashes uh, but these people are able to bring it back so hopefully people are being re reunited with their photos there in japan we always like to end the show on a fun note this week is no different over on the lens blog a cool video piece on the food photographer, Andrew Scrivani, who shoots uh, almost daily for the New York Times. Um, and if you're into food photography, like I am, or you just enjoy eating food, this is a nice three and a half minute video that you should watch. It shows Andrew working. It shows kind of the natural light that he uses for many of the images. It shows him with his manual focus macro lens. And then it intersperses a lot of his food images, which are just mouth-watering. Uh, really, really <laughs> great stuff. And it makes me want to shoot more food. But every time I shoot food, it never comes out as good as his stuff. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the problem is. Um, maybe it's because I have no food stylist, or maybe it's because I'm not a very good food photographer. <laughs> Whatever the case may be, it's a really, really great piece on Andrew Scrivani. I want to talk to that guy. I want to go on a food shoot with that guy. We have come to the end of episode 49 of I Love Photography. Thank you for joining us. Sarah will return next week for episode 50. So for Photo Shelter, this is Alan Murabayashi signing off. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.